This is Talk Medicine with Rob Bennett and Michigan Primary Care Partners of Big Rapids on WBRN. Talk Medicine is a paid medical program which does not reflect the opinions of the management and staff of WBRN and the Big Rapids Radio Network. Welcome back to segment two of Talk Medicine with Dr. Rashmi Junasia from Michigan Primary Care Partners in Big Rapids, also at michiganprimarycarepartners.com. I'm Rob Bennett, and this is News Radio WBRN, sponsored by Metron of Big Rapids, caring for people one person at a time. And we're talking about asthma today, and the what is the pathology of asthma? Well, uh the pathology of asthma, I would say, to summarize it, would be inflammation, uh, which plays a big role as seen by the significant improvement in the patients after they have received steroid treatments. Uh, the number two thing would be allergic reactions to different environmental factors. It could be viral, it could be animal dander, it could be any of the other things that a normal individual is exposed to. So the pathophysiology is complex and involves the following components. There is airway inflammation, and we just talked about airway, so hopefully that makes sense. Intermittent airflow obstruction, and there's bronchial hyperresponsiveness. So these three would summarize what's going on uh, in lung. So when there's airway inflammation, it can be sub it can be acute, subacute, or it can be chronic, depending on what is going on at the cellular levels. There are many cells inside our body that are our fighter cells that participate in this. Uh, so uh, mast cells have a big role. I would say eosinophils, epithelial cells, macrophages, and activated T lymphocytes all have a role here to play. And depending on the factors like adhesion molecules or the remodeling that has been going on in the lungs secondary to the previous episodes of asthma, all these cells are directed uh, to, uh, to sort of cause an irritation in the area. It forces the mucosa inside the airway to create more mucus and it causes the muscles that are in the connective tissue to react and so you have a, a spasm which means that the airway is a little bit more narrow but then you have the mucus glands that are creating more mucus as a response to all of these chemicals being liberated from all of these different cells that sit in the matrix of the lung tissue. Hmm. And the degree of airway hyperresponsiveness generally will correlate with the clinical severity of asthma. So there was another very interesting study that shows uh, that, uh, that if we stain the mast cells in patients who are on steroids and, we, and not on steroids, there was a significant increase in these cells in patients who are not on steroids. So that makes us uh, lead to the conclusion that uh, in, when patients are treated, then the responsiveness is much reduced compared to those that are not treated. Chronic inflammation is also associated with increased bronchial hyperresponsiveness, which is what leads to the wheezing, the feeling of shortness of breath, and even little things like just a sudden blast of cold air or exercise or a little bit exposure to environmental irritants, like maybe a little bit of smoke or you know, somebody doesn't have a good exhaust will sort of trigger the lungs to give this response 
which would not be in a normal individual. There is also always sort of a balance in our body. There are two types of TH lymphocytes and they sort of keep things in check and balance. However, in some patients, these uh, these seem, this, this balance is also lost in the lung. And this is popularly known as hygiene hypothesis of asthma, which shows that this cytokine imbalance, uh, somehow because we live in a very clean environment and we are not exposed to a lot of different allergens or environmental toxins, uh, we react a lot. So asthma is more of a disease of the westernized world secondary to uh, to this hypothesis of hygiene mm. as it is called so we are not exposed to certain things as a child and then when we are exposed to it we have sort of a violent reaction to it wow well there was something else i was thinking of when you were talking about that is is it something that is hereditary or not well, this hypothesis is based on the concept that the immune system of the newborn, so it does start when you're a newborn, is skewed towards TH2 cytokine generation, which are mediators of allergic inflammation. Following birth, environmental stimuli such as infections activate this TH1 response and bring this TH1-TH2 relationship to a sort of an appropriate balance. But when you're not exposed to any environmental allergens or different things at birth, then, you know, this imbalance can occur. Uh, however, this is still a hypothesis. This has not been proved scientifically, but it is something that is being looked at. Well, I was wondering about that with people like uh, like a, a newborn that is a preemie or something, and they're kept in, in sterile environment. Are they more prone to get asthma? They are more prone to have lung infections, not necessarily asthma. Mm. Wow, well, that's a tough yeah. way to start, yeah. isn't it? But then there is also a study that states that if, they, if we are exposed to certain viruses uh, at birth, we have an increased risk of asthma. So because of that secondary correlation, I would say they are at an increased risk. Hmm. Uh, there are other forms of asthma, sort of aspirin-induced asthma. Five to ten percent of patients who have asthma actually have some nasal polyps, and their their care, their uh, problem becomes worse if they are ever put on aspirin. So uh, that's something to watch for. If you feel that you were you suddenly started aspirin for your heart or whatever other reason, and your wheezing or you're feeling worse you might be one of those patients that has aspirin induced asthma even even a little like the baby aspirin yes really yeah that yeah. much will yeah. set yeah. it off yeah so so if they're put on aspirin they suddenly uh, have more nasal polyps they have sensitivities and they have asthma in relation to the use of aspirin mm. and now is uh if somebody came into the doctor can they find out the nasal polyps without having asthma uh, being diagnosed? I mean, can they see if they have nasal polyps? Yeah, or? it's very easy. You know, you, you have a little scope and you can look at the nose to see if they have any polyps. Yeah. So it is unusual. It's, it's not a common condition. Oh, okay. But right. about 5% of asthmatics have that. But it's something that if, I mean, if you're going to tell somebody to take aspirin for their heart, you probably want to know that, or you just say, here, take it and tell me if you have any problems. Yeah, <laughs> and it is, 
and we we there's a way around it we can always desensitize the patient for asthma for aspirin you mm-hmm. know to prevent the asthma from occurring so you'd give them very small dose and slowly increase the dose or you can desensitize them with the help of an allergist mm-hmm. now this is something that is kind of unique it, uh, or it's, it sounds unique to me but maybe it's something that is is fairly common and that would be work related asthma tell me about that well, occupational factors are associated with 10 to 15% of adult asthma cases. Uh, so if you see, if a patient comes to you and they report worsening of their symptoms during the week, but then they are suddenly better over the weekend, that should trigger, uh, that, that should trigger a possible diagnosis of occupational asthma. Occupational asthma is of two types, immune-mediated and non-immune-mediated. So immune-mediated asthma has a latency of months to years after exposure to whatever ABC, whatever their occupation or environmental exposure might be. And non-immune-mediated asthma or irritant-induced asthma uh, will occur within 24 hours after an accidental uh, exposure to high concentrations of respiratory irritants. Uh, So optimally, we can do peak flow monitoring, which is uh, a little device uh, where if you breathe in, it measures roughly the capacity of your lung. Uh, so we could do peak flow monitoring during work, optimally at least four times a day for at least two weeks, and then do it when they are not at work to see if there is a, a correlation to work and not being at work. Mm-hmm. Well, it seems to me that if you have, uh, say you have a work environment that's bad, like it's dusty or whatever, mm-hmm. And you wear, and if you put on one of those masks, it seemed like that would hurt the breathing for asthma. Would does that affect it? I think it affects it because no matter what kind of a mask you have, the mask will protect you against bigger particles. You're still inhaling the air, mm-hmm. and if the the particle size that you're reacting to is tiny, which a lot of times it is. Uh, then the mask will not prevent you from inhaling it. You'll still inhale it. So maybe the bigger particles are out of the picture, but the smaller particles are still an issue. It's got to be really a bad and a problem if you're a firefighter, a firefighter, and uh, you have asthma. You know, to go in yep. and that stuff. That's got to be tough. To go in all that smoke and heat, and you know, all that is triggering all these responses in your body. Ugh, yeah. That is awful. Mm-hmm. And what was the the next thing you said you wanted to talk about? Well, uh, there is some, uh, I wanted to talk about viral exposure in children. There is evidence that suggests that rhinovirus illness during infancy is a significant risk factor for development of wheezing in preschool children and a frequent trigger of wheezing illnesses in children with asthma. Uh, so the presence of HRVC or human rhinovirus C has been associated with severe asthma. So if the uh, approximately 80 to 85% of childhood asthma is associated with prior viral exposure. So if possible, immunize your children. If possible, treatment with antibiotics appropriate for organism improves the clinical signs and symptoms of asthma. Mm-hmm. So if your child is sick, it's okay to wait, wait for a little bit. You know, don't, don't wait forever. Get the treatment so that uh, their lungs are not exposed to all these changes that occur with asthma. Because if you have repeated attacks of disinflammation, then eventually the lung tissue starts to change itself, and we call it remodeling. 
so we don't really want pulmonary remodeling because every time there is remodeling in the body we lose certain inherent qualities our lung is a very uh, elastic tissue so when it uh, undergoes exposure to all these different chemicals that are released by the mast cells the lymphocytes all these cells it makes the cells change and they become harder and the lung loses its elasticity so mm. we don't really want that especially in children because they still have a lot of growing up to do and mm-hmm. their lung tissue has to grow uh, so to prevent scarring so to speak it is a good idea to treat asthma in a timely manner so is, is there a, a vaccination for this uh, not for asthma, but no. there is vaccination for different uh, a- agents that you know children should finish their immunization. Mm-hmm. And it'll help all along in a roundabout way. Absolutely, absolutely. For example, mycoplasma pneumonia and chlamydia are two common uh, agents that cause infection in children, and there is immunization for that. Mm-hmm. And obviously, if they're if they have asthma and get any of these other diseases, it just worsens both yep. both it, of the things, yeah, right? Yeah. So you have a hit, and then you have a double hit, and then things just uh, you know it's the domino effect. They are much yeah. worse when they're in combination versus a single disease by itself. And if you do have that, I mean, if you get a, a disease and you have asthma, not just children but adults, if you have that, is there? Uh, a problem with with treating it because of drug interactions or anything like that especially with i don't know with the inhalers are mm-hmm. they a, a problem they're the biggest problem that we have with bronchodilators and it is more seen in the elderly than the children i think is uh, tachycardia so albuterol can sometimes trigger a little arrhythmia and if you have an elderly patient they already have an underlying arrhythmia or they have some cardiac issue and uh, if they are using large amount of albuterol, that will predispose them to having some tachyarrhythmias. And, mm-hmm. and those are some things to tell the patient about. That if you are using your rescue inhaler and you're not feeling better, don't just keep using it. You know, you have to wait uh, for a little bit and then try to use it. Or if you are having tachyarrhythmias or rapid heart rate because of the inhaler, uh, then maybe go to the ER and get better treatment. Yeah. So in the elderly who are already on so many medication, polypharmacy remains a problem, and we have to use inhalers with caution. Is it with different people of how many times you use an inhaler? Is it just different people, or can you use it as many times as, as you need it? Or You can, but the medication is only meant to do so much. So there are long-acting bronchodilators and there are short-acting bronchodilators. For example, Zopinux is a long-acting bronchodilator. You really you do you need to use it once a day. Or Albuterol is a short-acting, so sometimes you can use that four times a day or five times a day, uh, depending on what's going on with your life. But that is another red flag. If you're using a lot of your rescue inhaler, that's a problem. That means the disease is not under control. Mm -hmm. So a rescue inhaler like a bronchodilator is really for rescue. It is not something that you need to use all the time. Your disease should be under control, so you're not needing the rescue inhaler all the time. Yeah, I had a... uh program director who had asthma or I, I assume he did he had a inhaler that he, he carried with him and he kept telling me that I was trying to kill him because I would tell him jokes and things like that 
and he would start laughing and then he couldn't breathe and he would have to use his inhaler and he'd say, stop, stop talking. You're trying to kill me. You know? And I didn't know. I mean, I, he would always pull that out and, and, and he would have to, yeah. you know, be hosing down with that. Yeah. What can I say? Laughter is not the best medicine always, <laughs> not, right? Not when you have asthma, right? Yeah. <laughs> All right. We'll be back with the last segment here with Dr. Rashmi Juneja from Michigan primary care partners in big rapids and at michiganprimarycarepartners.com i'm rob bennett and this is news radio wbrn sponsored by metron of big rapids caring for people one person at a time